Go ahead and grab a seat and good morning and go Vols. That's right. That's right. <clears throat> and happy three-day weekend. Happy Labor Day weekends. Um, as Paula said, we've got a lot of people out of town traveling. If you are traveling Monday, we'll be praying for you later on. Be safe and please be praying for those people who are traveling. Um, hey, we're going we're gonna to be in Luke 1 today. If you have a Bible or an app that you're using, Luke 1 is going to be helpful So is Philippians 2, and those are two passages that were actually referred to in the call to worship. We're going to focus on those passages mostly. Um, We are going to dance around in different parts of the Bible as well, so it's good to have you here. That's going to be where we're at. Hey, I don't know if you have memories like I do, deep memories of things in your life that you knew were important yet they just weren't important to you at all. But, but you knew that they were important. Consequential, but to you, totally inconsequential. As a kid growing up, I would hear my parents talking about stuff that sounded technical. Um, it sounded complicated, things like politics and economy and, and things. And I would listen to them and I would know what they're talking about is important and I don't care because it has no effect on the, the better way to clean my Jordans or who I was going to sit with at lunch. I mean, I'm just a kid. I don't really care what's going on. What I learned is, is as I grew up, there are still things that are consequential and important, yet I think are trivial because <laughs> they don't intrude into my everyday. Some of you, you probably hear news reports about like the Fed interest rate or primary elections or something like that, and you know that it's important. You know that the interest rate, for instance, it's important. It speeds up. It slows down our economy. It has massive ripple effects all throughout, anything from getting a credit card to purchasing a home and on downstream from that. Yet at the same time, it doesn't really affect the conversations you have with your kids across the table, right? or what plants you put in front of your house. It doesn't always make it into the boring, ordinary, routine things of life. Well, some truths in the Bible can feel like that as well, right? Trivial, but you know that they're important as well. And this is how you know that they're important, because you hear a guy on stage preach about it a lot, right? Or you see books at bookstores on that one thing. You know it's important. But at the same time, you're just trying to make it through the day and have a few laughs and have some peace in your life and stay encouraged. I think sometimes, and I see this as a pastor, as the church grows, we could treat certain pieces of doctrine, certain theological truths, kind of like leg day at the gym, right? We know it's important. We know to skip it is going to have down, down, downfield ramifications. You're going to look a little top-heavy, and it's not going to be great for you. But at the same time, I mean, chest and tries. You know what I'm saying? It's a fresh day. It's a new day. We'll do leg day later on. We can do the same thing with the Bible, and we can get out of balance and therefore out of doctrinal health. Now, what we've been talking about over the last two weeks, and this is our third week to be in the Apostles' Creed, we've been talking about how helpful creeds are to form us and make us into different kinds of disciples that live in a different kingdom. One of the things they do is they bring a high accuracy to our theology. They help us see accurately, with with deep acuity, what is true about God and therefore what is true about us. It helps us become more fluent and more consistent in the top-tier truths of the Bible, both with each other and and even with the lost city. But at the same time, it also brings balance. It it takes the asymmetry of how we see God and how we see ourselves, and it balances it for, for our good. Now, we started with God as Father, 
And then we pivoted to Jesus as both Son and Lord. And then the creed, it seems to take an, an odd, I guess, path through the virgin birth. The virgin birth. We see in Colossians 2. For in him, being Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Big sentence right there. And this actually starts in the manger, right? Now, we know this is consequential, right? We know that this is important, and yet at the same time, there's a piece of us that really doesn't care. I mean, why would we? I mean, honestly, frankly, okay, frankly, it's easy to see how the cross makes it into the creed. It's easy to see how the universal church, maybe the Holy Spirit, makes it into the creed. But how did the virgin birth crack the top ten? How did it get in? More to the point, why does it matter for you? Why do you care? And this is typically a Christian message. Or I don't want to say a Christian one. Typically a Christmas message where we take it out, we dust it off, we kind of bring it out in this moment called Advent. We get through it, we box it back up. We stack it away at least before the, the ball drops on New Year's, and then we wait another 52 weeks before we bring it out again. And this is why we do this, is because it has a hard time creeping into our normal life. And I can see why it might have mattered deeply a thousand years ago, 1,500 years ago in the church. Because the church was being assaulted by heresies all the time. It was just tons of hail damage on the young church from heresies coming from the right and the left, mostly mishandling the person of Jesus, right? And how Jesus appeared as fully God and fully man. That was one of the leading heresies at the time. Some say up to half of the heresies were on the person of Christ and up to two-thirds of the heresies were, were on the Trinity itself, right? Now, I don't know who does math on that. I don't know who really cares, but I do understand that if you have a cracked Christ, you're going to have a cracked gospel. So it was very important for them back then to really focus on it. But is that, the, is that the case in today's church? I mean, do we struggle with that? Do we really need that in today's creed? I'm going to say, yeah. I'm going to say it is important because this is what we do when it comes to Jesus. I want you to imagine a soundboard um, if you've never seen one, take a glance at the one that we bought. We have a, like a top-of-the-line one. Don't touch it. Jeff will come out of the seat if he sees you touching it. You have to have a permit to touch it. But it looks like the cockpit of an aircraft carrier. It's full of knobs and dials and faders. And what we can do as people is we can move a fader up and down or grab volume knobs and move them back and forth, adjusting how God God is or how much man God is when it comes to the person of Jesus. He's a little bit more man than he needs to be. A little bit more God, a little less God than he needs to be. We just move those faders back and forth, back and forth. And when we see Jesus as much more man than God, the result is irreverence. Stripping deity from Jesus just makes him easy to ignore, makes him easy to discount. It's really nothing more than an example, maybe a model for us to walk behind. But he can't be a supernatural provision for us. He can't be a miraculous substitution for us or a heroic rescuer. He's just a special guy who, who just behaves better than you do, who's just more consistent than we are. But if Jesus is more God than he is man, he's not irreverent anymore. Now there's irrelevance because honestly, we, we strip away his flesh and his bone and his, his headaches in his REM cycles, and then he can't associate with us. He's easy to detach from because, after all, what does he know about your life? He's just too God and not enough man for that. Even if you have tight theology, and the theology uh, revolving around the person of Christ, we call that Christology, 
just to put it out there. Christology, even if you have a dialed-in Christology, do you not catch yourself reading, especially the Gospels, and seeing Jesus as a little less God and a little less man in certain instances? When you see him walking on water, does he not just look like he's a whole lot more God than he is man in that moment? And then when you see him flipping tables over, is it easy to go, he's having a mostly man day right now, right? Mostly man. It, but, but when he puts his hands on people who simply can't see, or, or, or lepers where their skin is falling off, or he's calling to his friend to come out of a tomb, isn't it easy to go, wow, he's more God than he is man in this moment? Or when we see him rebuke Peter, isn't it easy to go, is he just having a bad day? I mean, why is he rebuking him right now? You see how we do that? Grab the faders and the, and the volume knobs, and we adjust who Jesus is. Listen, without the virgin birth, without a good theology on the virgin birth and the person of God, we end up with a very low view of God. That's where we get if you chase it all the way to its end. One of the things that Tozer will say about a low view of God is it destroys the gospel for us. You can't have a good gospel with a low view of God. So what I'd like to do is maybe reframe that. Not just a good theology, but why you care. Why will it matter Tuesday morning, Saturday afternoon? Why does the virgin birth really matter for you and me in 2023? So let's look at Luke 1. We're going to read the first five chapters of the book of Luke together. I'm just playing. We're not. We're going to read just a little bit of, of the first. These are the longest chapters in the whole Bible, man. They go forever. Um, but we're just going to pick a small piece out of Luke 1. Verse 26 is where we're going to jump in. And this is going to be a big, a big weightlifter for us today. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has already conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Okay, right there. That's going to be the key phrase for us, that nothing is going to be impossible with God, right? The genetic code of this child for the first time and only time in human history will have no contribution from a physical man. It, listen, that's biologically impossible. We know this. It's logically impossible. And I think Mary needed to hear that nothing is impossible in a moment like this. I need to hear it. Maybe you do too. I get amnesia sometimes on what is and is not possible with God. I mean, do you ever catch yourself praying for things 
mostly things that are probably possible without God? Think about it. The things you ask for, are they things on the lower shelf? You know, a good challenge, I have to challenge myself in, in, in all times, am I praying for three or four or five things that are totally impossible unless God decides to do something? I think it's good. It's good to pray for those things. Whether it's someone's health, whether it's someone's salvation, whatever it is, to always be praying, always be risking your prayers upon the impossibility that God can come in and just wreck it, turn it over, fix it, change it, pray for things that are impossible. It's good practice. Because Mary was receiving the news that God is about to attach humanity to himself. And what's cool about this is that this will happen without suffering the loss of his deity. If you care, if you're interested in this level of theology, this is what they call the hypostatic union, right? I will never say that again up here, at least today. Um, But if you're interested, that's what it's called. It's a technical term for the unipersonality of Christ, right? Jesus is God incarnate. He holds the form of humanity and deity at the same time. That's important for you and me. And as difficult as this might be for you and me to nail down, it's not hard to nail down what this is not, Okay, that's always a good place to start. And this is where some of the heresies would swirl in the earlier days of the church. One thing that Jesus is not, he is not a blended version of God. He is not God blended, in other words. Jesus is not what you get when you mix red paint with yellow paint to get orange paint. Okay, he's not an alloy, a a, a special third kind that is totally different from the other two. It's important to know that. Jesus is also not God fractionated or broken into components as if he is half man and half God. It might seem like a nerd thing whenever people say, ah, 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 he's not half God and half man, he's full God and full man. I mean, there's, whenever I hear that sometimes, I think, come on, but you knew what they were talking about, right? But this is why it's important. This is why it's important. Because if you are half God, half man, then that means you have found limitations. 100% and 100% means that God has no limitations. He is not limited as God. Jesus is not limited as man either. He is not God fractionated. Jesus is also not God depreciated. This means that in assimilating humanity to himself, Jesus did not decrease from who he was. This is really important because one of the biggest heresies of the early church is that Jesus would somehow lose pieces of his deity in attaching humanity to himself, right? And I get where they get that. It's almost a little bit logical when we read Philippians and when you went through it, there is this, this it, what reads to be a degradation. He is impoverishing himself. He is abandoning him. He's emptying himself, it sounds like. It sounds less to me. It sounds like he's unloading pieces of the Godhead so that he could become adequately human. But Jesus emptying or impoverishing himself to take the form of a servant, that is not discarding his divine power or his divine character. It's abandoning his glory and his dignity. That's what he is losing. But he never loses his power. He restrains it. He restrains it in the same way that like a strong man holds a baby We see a strong man, like a competitive strong man, holding a baby. We know that's a guy that could pick the front of my truck up and push it 100 yards or throw a couch over a a wall or something like that, and yet they don't crush their kid because their power is restrained. Jesus doesn't lose his power. It's restrained for God's glory and for your good. And all of this can be true. Listen, everything I've said so far 
which is just Christology. It's just theology. Everything I say could be true, and you still not care. I mean, it's, it's good, but who cares, right? This is when it starts to care. If this is true, then this means that Jesus identifies with you as much as he does his father. Consider that. Consider the weight of it. That he identifies with you as much as he does his own father. How do you know that, Luke? Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.15. Stay where you're at. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus, attaching humanity to himself, sympathizes with you, affiliates with you, associates with you, identifies with you, advocates for you. In fact, he dwells with us. Dwells. That's how he pulls it off. He's a dwelling God. In fact, let's look at this in John 1. John 1, if you turn there, that's fine. If not, we'll have it up on the screen. It says this. It starts off much like Genesis does. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And down in verse 14, it gets to the point and says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He dwelt. He dwelt. We don't use that word very much today. And if you were to really crank down onto the language of what that means, it simply means that he pitched, he, he pitched a tent and he resided with us. He anchored among humanity. He stayed. He stayed with us. God shows up no longer clothed in a temple or a tabernacle, but in a tent of skin to be with you and to be with me, and he comes close. That's what's beautiful about the dwelling of God is how close he comes. He doesn't use an extension pole so to uh, not get too close to the zoo animals, right? doesn't wear gloves when he gets around us. He doesn't look from a far away away hoping that we don't get too close to him, but he comes as close to humans as humanly possible. He puts his hands on people. He, he has nails go through him. He laughs. He cries. He's got parents. He's got friends. He's got enemies. He's got good days. He's got tough days. He's got sunburns. He's got splinters from work. He is among us. He dwells. In fact, he understands you more than you realize. Friend, listen, I know that we hear this and we say it, you need to know he understands you better than you understand yourself. Listen, you don't even know why you do the things you do. You don't. But he does. How crazy is that? How crazy is that? How crazy is it that he understands why some temptations call to you and others don't? You, you probably have never understood that. How you're able to walk by temptations that get people on your left and on your right. And they just don't really, it just kind of bounce off of you. It's not really a tempt, but one thing, oh my gosh, it gets you. You might not know why, he does. And not only does he know why, he has suffered every temptation in such a way that he affiliates and understands you. I wish I had more time to talk about how deep his temptation was. But listen, mission, mission experts will take a scalpel out and they will cut between the words mission 
and incarnation. And I bring it up here because I think it's somewhat important. They're not wrong to do that. And what I mean is this. Incarnation is not something you and I do. It's been done once. It's God becoming man. That's what the incarnation is, right? When I use the word incarnational life, incarnational living, incarnational mission, incarnational ministry, what I'm referring to is an aspect of ministry where we kind of take the same shape as that, where we are stepping in and dwelling. We're stopping. We're staying. John 17 and Jesus, as he's praying to the Father, says this, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. W- listen, our ministry will always kind of walk in the same way that Jesus' ministry did. And it will be incarnational. And this is a good way of looking at the difference between those two words, mission and incarnation. If mission is to go, incarnation is to stay. If the idea about mission is movement, incarnation is more of a posture that that sits, that long suffers, that does not leave. And we only know how to do either one of those things because we can watch it in the person of Christ. We can see it in God himself. That's our example, right? I mean, think of it this way. God himself is the very first missionary, very first missionary ever, coming to you and me. He, He left the place of peace, crossed a boundary, and came to a people of conflict, a people of difficulty. He did so at his own cost for our benefit. And that is the exact shape of every missionary today. And we see a dedication in Jesus. He was dedicated to this mission, both for the redemption of all of the cosmos, for his glory, for the glory of the Father, and for you and for me. And this is how we know this. In Galatians 4, it says this. Now your Bible might say something different depending on what version you're reading, but it won't be too different. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, when it says the fullness of time had come, it's talking about the initiative and the intentionality of God to come across a boundary to you and to me. Some of your Bibles, it says at the perfect time. Some might say at the right time. That's an okay translation. I've heard one translation say when time was pregnant, I kind of like that a lot. But what it's talking about is that God took the initiative to come close to rebels. We did not. He's intruding on us when we were not looking for him, not asking for him. He was intentional when we were not. Now, I've heard scholars and I've read how, well, when it says the fullness of time here or at the perfect time, it's talking about the fact that During that time, the Romans had built so many roads and the Greek language had been so easily trafficked among different cultures that that kind of made the time perfect for the gospel to come because it can move quickly, it can speak fast across. Maybe, right? I'm pretty sure God could have figured it out at any other time as well. I don't think, I don't don't really have any evidence of God responding to history as much as driving it and building it. But what I do know is no one was expecting it. No one was expecting God to come as man. Wise men had to have a star lead them. The shepherds had to have angels tell them. God surprised us. He moved first. He was very intentional in his timing. He was a good missionary, very good missionary. And not only did he take the initiative as a good missionary, he was invested. He was invested with us because he not only crossed a boundary, he stayed here. He stayed among us. Kind of like Abraham. If you go back in Genesis and you read, you'll see a picture of Abraham do what? He leaves the city, a people 
that are like him. He was of considerable wealth. And he crosses and lives in the desert. He vacates himself, impoverishes himself, and goes and lives in a place of difficulty with difficult people. And he dwells. We see Paul later on saying, I'll become all things to all people. We see this element peppered all throughout the Bible. Jesus not only went to others, but he sympathized, associated. He wore other people's pain. He even wore our temptations. I know when Jesus vacated his glory, he did so to find us in the gutters. This is why the gospel is so astounding. I mean, if you look at Philippians 2, it says this, and this was part of the call to worship, but it's worth going over just these five verses. And verse 6 is where I'll pick it up in Philippians 2. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God was, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what we have. This is where we've come to. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, full God, attached humanity to himself to also be full man, and he dwelt among you and me. But again, who cares? Right? Who cares? I mean, it might. It might help us appreciate the Bible a little bit more, appreciate our calling a little bit more. It might educate us, might clear up some long-held questions we have. But, I mean, come on, we've got mortgages and medications we hope that we've scrimped enough money to retire before we're 92 years old. We hope that our marriage makes the next 10 years a little bit better than it weathered the last 10 years. In a land of compounding issues, God becoming the God-man might seem important and yet trivial at the same time. Consequential and yet inconsequential at the very same time. But it is consequential. And this is... An, this is an application. This is an implication, I could say, of what we're talking about. I think I say up here almost every, every time I get the mic, I say it so much, you've got to be tired of hearing it by now. You have to be. You have to be. If you say you're not, you're lying to me. I know that I say probably eight out of ten times I'm up on this stage that if you are in Christ, you are also a missionary, right? Don't I say that all the time? It's because we believe it. Right, to, to, to grow as a disciple means you're growing as a missionary at the same time. It's a cornerstone conviction for us. I don't even believe that you can enjoy Jesus to the maximum without being a missionary that is active. Whether you're succeeding or failing doesn't matter to me. And, and right here in this moment, in a sermon like this, is where you might expect us to kind of open up the door and invite shame to come in. This is where I say, hey, listen. Look how good of a missionary he was. Now you go and be good missionaries, right? Because that's what shame can do real quickly. But I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say something different. I'm going to say that we are free. We're free to be good missionaries because we have a better one. We have a better one for us. I do think that shame is an ineffective motivator for going to people. It's even harder to use that as a motivation to stay with people, especially if they're difficult people. 
But our failure in being a good missionary is really simple. It's, it's distilled down to an unbelief in God's goodness to us, right? You and I, we, we were created to like good things, to have good things, actually. We were created to have good things. It's in us, right? And yet without Christ, what we do is we start looking all over for good things around us. We hunt for good in the world. And sometimes we find things that are good for a little while. Sometimes we chase it to the very bitter end. What missional living will do, incarnational missional living will do, is it will interfere in how much goods from the world we can hoard to ourselves. It'll get in the way. It won't let you have everything that you want, right? This is what we know. Going and staying is intrusive and it's expensive. And there are a few things that we do that, are, that we're pretty good at as, as, a, as a Christian church, capital C church, and some things that we're just not very good at. We're good at going, but we're not very good at dwelling. What, what I mean is, is you might muster the courage to go and be a missionary. Right, maybe you hear someone preach on it, and you're like, that's it. I'm convicted. I'm doing it. Or you read a book, or you see someone live it as an example, and it's influential in your life. And then we go. We're really good at going, but we can sometimes just pick up our anchor and move on just as quickly as we got there. Friends, listen, soup kitchens, they count on it. Homeless ministries, they build their calendars around it. The brief drive-by service. Lots of comers, not a lot of stayers. Short-term missions, same way. Dwelling invites long-suffering into our lives. Because we don't cut and run. We stay. We live through difficult settings, difficult moments. This is the stuff of ministry. That's where ministry is found. We're also good at connecting, but not good at connecting at the same time. What I mean is, is we're good at connecting in issues that engage people without engaging people with issues. <laughs> all right. We're all really good sociologists. We know the, the, the societal ramifications of the Barbie movie, for instance, right? Because you read three articles and you listened to a podcast, so now you know what you believe about that. And what it says into our culture and how a woman is supposed to interpret that movie, good or bad, I don't care what you believe about that. But we are really good at knowing things about that. But yet when we sit across the table from a young woman that struggles with that, we're not able to connect with her, are we? We could connect with the issues on the macro, but on the micro, we don't have the courage to say or even ask the right questions. We could connect and not connect at all. We're good at that as well. We're good at judging, not good at advocating, which means that when we do connect, watch your posture. Oftentimes, it can be from a top-down position, even a condescending one, where we're a little less of an advocate and a little bit more of a critic. I heard one pastor talk about, now he's speculating. I don't know if he's right or wrong. I don't know that it's bad that he speculates this far into the passage, however, so I'm going to submit it. I'm not going to teach it. But he estimates that in John 8, when the woman caught in adultery was drugged before Jesus in the city, and she was preparing to die by stones. Consider that. People picking up rocks of random sizes to pelt you, eventually someone's going to get a stone big enough and end it all. And, and how what we would all do if we were in that situation is probably cover our head and get as small as we can, right? That's probably what I would do just intuitively. How, how Christ probably saw her kneeling, crouching, just laying, covering, covering her vital organs, covering her head, because that's intuitively what we would all do. 
And what he would say is, and I don't know that he's wrong or right, I'm doubtful that Jesus would be standing tall above her. I I, I doubt he's saying, I'll help you, but then I've got to go wash my hands when I'm done. Right? But what do we have? We have a kneeling down on her level, drawing in the dirt. Right? Associating. Did he do that? I don't know. Would he do that? Absolutely he would do that. You see, we struggle at some things, but mostly in the dwelling department. Now listen, when it comes to this, what I'm talking about, you're not obligated to do anything I've said today, but you're free to do all of it. You're free. Because here's the thing, gone are the days, if you're in Christ, gone are the days where you are forced to make the good things of this world ultimate things for you. it's, It's when we take good things in our life, like weekends, money, right, Uh, streaming services, whatever it is, it's when we make them saviors in our life that we can no longer afford to go and stay. Can't afford it anymore. Can't. We'll lose those things. You see, bad missionaries aren't bad missionaries because they're inexperienced or because they're not good at talking. It's not because they're uneducated. Missionaries struggle because they're distracted and they're highly dissatisfied with God. God is simply not good enough. But if God is the ultimate good, then we are free to spend and be spent for the rest of our lives, right? Here's my appeal. It's not to be a better missionary. It's to behold a better missionary. It's to behold one. Adore one. Fixate your attention on it. Love. Discover. Enjoy the greatest missionary. You see, the Christmas message of the incarnation, which is what we've traveled through, one of the reasons it's so powerful and one of the reasons we even have it in the Bible is because it leverages and sets the stage for our Good Friday and Easter, right? Which is the bloody cross and the empty tomb. That's why it's there. That's why it's important for you. Listen, 1 Timothy says it well. Paul says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You see, God becoming man, that happens or we remain in our sins. We remain in our sins. That's how pivotal this is. And 1 Timothy spells it out for us that we have a mediator. And this is what that means. We need one that will affiliate with us, associate with us, and then also affiliate and associate with the Father. We have this divine bridge touching both. Only one person can do that. They'd have to be fully God and fully man to touch both God and man as a mediator, as a proper mediator. He's the truest of bridges. This is why being conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary is honestly the greatest news you could probably hear today and consequential. Because without it, you're dead in your sins. You're hopeless to find good at all. You know, I think what I like about this part of the creed is we're reminded in this part of the creed that nothing is impossible without God. Not the birth of Jesus, not your own rebirth, not the the new birth of your neighbor, the one that you can't imagine ever really becoming born again, your rebellious neighbor. But it's the same Holy Spirit that's active in all of those arenas. And now, if you're in Christ, what is true for you and true for me is there is nothing that this world can offer of greater value than the greatest good 
of our God, trusting in that, over hoarding all of the goods of the world to make them our saviors will bring freedom to us. Otherwise, every time you lose a good, you will just be tormented. It'll be like you're in a living hell. This is why you read articles, by the way, or hear news stories about someone that lost lost their plane seat, you know, and they come unglued and they start screaming at everybody and then air marshals are carrying them off the plane. Why did they do that? Don't you ever catch yourself asking that? Why did they do that? People losing a boyfriend or a girlfriend and they come absolutely undone. Changes their whole life. They make bad decisions. Why did they do that? Because there were some things that were good in their life that they applied a savior status to and it couldn't save them. More ultimate than good after all. But when satisfied with God, you are free to connect, free to long suffer, free to dwell, free to abandon things, free to impoverish yourself, free to become lesser, free to stoop, free to do all of those things. And maybe just a couple encouragements before the team comes up and we end this. Some of you are actively on mission and actively trying to walk in this incarnation, this, this staying ability with people. I've talked to a few this morning. Let me just say this as an encouragement. You're dwelling with somebody long term. It's never going to feel impactful and important in the moment. It always feels insignificant. That's why whenever they walk away or you walk away, you have all these regrets, right? Gosh, I wish I'd have said that differently. Man, if I'd have just asked this question, that's why we do that. Because we feel like there's a lack of significance, a lack of moving the ball down the field when we are with them. That's the way it's always going to feel, though. Never judge your missional fruit at the moment. You're sowing seed. Others will water it. You're watering seed. Other people will sow, right? And after a lifetime, friends, of spending and being spent, after a lifetime of that, of impoverishing yourself, connecting, staying at your own cost for their benefit, to cost you your time and your resources. After a lifetime of this, you'll be able to look back. You will. God will, you will be able to look back and you will see God got the growth the whole time and you'll be satisfied with it. You'll be like, yo, I talked to that person for like five minutes and then I moved on. I had no idea I planted a seed. Or I had that neighbor for six years and all they did was give me the middle finger, and, you know, but I did the best I could. And then you'll see, I was planting seeds that whole time. I didn't even know. God gets the growth. Never, never assess your incarnating dwelling with somebody. Never assess the fruit of that in the moment. You'll always come up a loser. Always. And your dwelling is going to be a mixture of being courageous and taking risks in the moment and then just being present. One without the other is kind of unbalanced. We talked about this in the partners meeting a little bit this morning. If you are always present, always available, but you never take a risk, you never act in courage and ask a really hard question, say a really hard thing, what it will give you over time is just a, a friendship of condoning, of endorsement of what's going on. But at the same time, if you're always courageous, always taking a risk, but never present, well, you know, you're going to become detached. Listen, if it feels impossible, and some of you might have people in your head right now, that person becoming a Christian, if it feels impossible, then it's perfect for God. It's perfect. It's perfect for God when nothing is impossible. So this is what I want you to do. Go ahead and stand with me. And I want you to think in your own head, before we take communion together and pray and move into worship, who is it in your life? Who is it? 
that need somebody to not just come to them, but to stay. To pitch a tent and stay. To dwell. Who is it? You need to know that with God, nothing is impossible. Who needs your presence? Just sheer volume of presence. Just lots of minutes put together. With God, nothing is impossible. Who needs you to take a risk? You're going to risk quite a bit because it could be the end of the friendship. Or else it wouldn't be risky. wouldn't require any courage. Who is it? Listen, with God, nothing is impossible. Nothing. Man, when I read this part of the creed, I am led to change and repent. It's easy to find us the unbelief that God is not really good, right? We have to add goods. We have to add goods. Or maybe an unbelief that incarnational mission is even worth it because we see people so far from God, we're like, why even bother, man? Why even bother? That person is so entrenched. They hate God so much. They are so not interested in the things of the Lord. They are so interested in their life. Friends, listen, that was me. You would just be talking about me. That's how God found me. With God, nothing is impossible, though. And listen, if you're watching or you're here and you are what you would even call yourself far from the Lord, far from God, let me just, let me say you cannot mediate and represent yourself before the Lord. I mean, you could try. But you cannot advocate yourself before a perfectly righteous father. You need an advocate. You need a mediator. You need someone who can associate and affiliate and understand you. And you need somebody who is holy. You need somebody who is perfect and powerful to stand in the gap for you. Let me just say to you, no matter what your background is, no matter what your reservations are, your hesitations, your regrets, with God, nothing is impossible. If you have that feeling in your life, logically, it just wouldn't make sense. Look, I mean, God, you're perfect. You're perfect for God. I would just submit to you to take that seriously today.